Welcome to the South Elkhorn Christian Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy the weekly messages. For bulletin material, reflection guides, and other resources, visit southelkhorncc.org. Dancing requires standing tall. Dancing requires a good posture, which is a problem because I suffer from something called the Schwarzentruber slouch. So when I took dance class with Rebecca a few years ago, I knew that I had some work to do. I, I suffer from something called the Schwarzentruber slouch. My uh, proclivity, my posture proclivity is one to have my shoulders back and my torso and pelvis out. In fact, you don't have to see the face of a Schwarzentruber to identify a Schwarzentruber. We we tend to have a slouch. Perhaps some slouching exists in your family too. Well, um, before I could ever learn how to swivel my hips, before I could ever learn which steps to take, before I could ever learn where to put my hands, I first had to learn how to have a better posture, to have a strong and firm frame, to have a standing tall kind of posture. So the the dance instructor, the dance instructor first first had me suck in my stomach and make it tight and had me push out my chest and then did something really interesting. He, he said, imagine that you have a string at the top of your head and I'm going to, I'm going to pull the string. And I kind of went up on my toes just a bit. And he said, there, now you're ready to dance. Now you're ready to dance. Standing tall doesn't come easily for me. Standing tall, standing tall doesn't come naturally for me. But what's interesting is when I started to stand tall like that, something followed. I could see the world a little bit differently. I could move in the world a little bit more easily. And there was a kind of confidence that followed. In fact, I suspect there's a lot more to posture than just our physical stature. Posture tends to signal something else about us. Indeed, people who study posture will say you can read a lot about a person just in how they're holding themselves. And so I learned with dancing that it's important that you stand tall, even though that didn't come naturally to me or easily for me. I knew that standing tall was important. And this morning, there's someone else who suffers from a difficulty with standing tall. A woman that was so beautifully um, unpacked for us in the story that Holly shared with 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 the kids this morning. This woman who had suffered from being hunched over, bent over, this crippling, paralyzing spirit for so long. But Jesus sees her. And he doesn't overlook perhaps something deeper. Join me in the story this morning as we read from Luke's gospel, the 13th chapter, verses 10 through 17, as we perhaps can see what Jesus saw. Now he, being Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and just then there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years, a very long time. She was bent over and was quite unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, You are set free from your ailment. When he laid his hands on her, immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. But the leader of the synagogue, 
Indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, there are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, you hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to give it water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? When he said this, all his opponents were put to shame and the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things that Jesus was doing. You pray with me? God of this day of rest, this day of Sabbath, we ask that you meet us here in our prayers, here in the scriptures, here in the story, here in our common worship, that you might free us by the power of Jesus for the life of freedom you have envisioned for your people. Free us from the social and religious and cultural stigmas which bind us. Free us from the anxiety and the distraction which binds us. Free, him from, free us from all the things which hinder our spirit this day. And help us to experience the sweet release, the restoration, the resurrection that is everywhere present in the power of Christ. And now, God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you. You who are our rock and redeemer. Amen. She was hunched over, almost cowering in the corner. It appeared that she was physically trembling. When I walked in the gazebo on this summer day for church camp, there were a host of eighth graders there to greet me, all perched on their seats, nervous, a little awkward. I was there with my adult co-counselor, and it was the first day of camp, not just any camp, and the, the canopy of the trees provided some refuge from the hot summer sun and a gentle breeze, you would have thought, would have made the conditions comfortable, but everyone was visibly uncomfortable, especially this eighth grade girl who I noticed just it's as if she wanted to disappear into the corner, not be seen, making no eye contact, not nervously chatting away as some of the other students were doing, just looking down, hunched over. You see, this wasn't just any camp. All the students had been to camp before at Camp Wakondahoe in Casey County, Kentucky. This church camp was Aiders Camp, also known as Created to Be Me Camp. And it's not your typical camp. In fact, some of our students, our South Elkhorn students who have been to this camp can tell you that at first, and maybe for a while, this camp is pretty awkward. Pretty awkward. Why? Well, it's got another name. It's an unfair and an inaccurate name, but it's, it sometimes goes by sex camp. It's a camp that there's no, there's no um, practical how-tos or encouraging of any kind of activity. That's not the kind of camp this is. But it is a camp that is meant to educate and empower students on the realities and complexities of the human body, on the way our bodies change and grow, on what it means to be intimate and how to be someone who is responsible in an age when so much irresponsibility is glorified and dignified. 
There's a lot of real talk. There's a lot of hard talk, and there's a lot of awkward conversations, but important conversations. In fact, conversations I wish that I had had when I was an eighth grader going into high school. I Perhaps some of you remember, or perhaps some of you have given, if you're a parent or grandparent or guardian, the talk. I just remember that I had one, that it was super uncomfortable. My dad sat down on my bed in middle school. He probably said some things, used some jargon, lingo that I had no idea what he was talking about. It was super weird. I blocked it out of my memory. That was it. Why is it that some of the most important conversations are the ones that we're so scared to have? I love my dad. It's his birthday. He was a loving presence, a supportive presence, an important presence in my life. But this was a hard and difficult and awkward conversation, and I don't remember much about it at all. It was probably just as awkward for me as it was for him. And I had a lot of questions, questions I was too, squ- too scared to voice, questions that I didn't even know how to phrase. I was afraid, ashamed, fearful, insecure, ignorant, and I wish I had had a place like Aders Camp to have awkward and real conversation. The opportunity to cut through the stigma and the shame to make, to help empower me to make responsible decisions. So I wasn't entirely surprised that when we gathered there on that summer day that there were some uncomfortable sitting around in the gazebo, people nervously looking this way and that, but this eighth grade girl, there was something different about her. She was quaking with embarrassment, just unable to even lift her head, to lift her eyes. She, it's as if she just wanted to disappear, to evaporate, to cease to exist. And I can't help but describe her as a bound spirit. A bound spirit, bound by shame, by her own ignorance, by her insecurity, by a world which glorifies sex but doesn't help anyone understand it, which turns people into commodities, which encourages people to use their bodies to find approval from others, along with just the lack of place to have a real conversation. She was, all I could describe her was just a bound spirit. And so when I cracked open Luke's gospel and began reading as I was preparing for the sermon this week and I heard about a bound, hunched over woman, my mind went back to this, this memory of this girl who was not suffering from any physical ailment but gave all the signals of a bound spirit, a posture hunched over in fear and shame. This story in Luke's gospel is, as we soon learn, about more than just someone with a physical ailment. The story is about more than just the physical reality of a particular posture. It's about something more. And it's a a story that's unique in Luke's gospel and unique in the Bible. You won't find another story like it anywhere else in the Bible. That said, it does share a lot in common with other stories in Luke's gospel and with other stories in the gospel accounts. Stories that are about Jesus healing on the Sabbath and the conflict that ensues. You see, as again, Holly mentioned in the children's message this morning, there were certain things that you were allowed to do on this Sabbath day of rest, and there were other things that were considered work. And there were disputes about just the full range of what was work and what wasn't, but there were certain obvious and important things that you were not supposed to do in order to honor and nurture and cultivate a relationship with God and, and, the, and the holy community that was what Sabbath was supposedly all about. And so it would be easy, it would be easy to read this story as we do some of the other stories and make this story about the Sabbath, about 
the dispute, the exchange, the rhetorical throwdown, if you will, between Jesus and the synagogue leader, I like to imagine it as a religious rap battle. I mean, think about it. They don't actually, they're responding to one another, the synagogue leader and Jesus, but they're not actually talking to each other. The synagogue leader addresses the crowd and Jesus, in addressing the synagogue leader, he says, you hypocrites, plural. Not just the the synagogue leader. They're talking past each other like you might see in a rap battle or a political debate on stage where what matters is the thoughts of the people who are gathered there to listen. And so I imagine the, the, the synagogue leader stepping up to the microphone and laying down the first rhyme, laying down the first line. You've had six long days to do all this healing. Give it a rest and get back to kneeling. I've been waiting my whole life for this. <laughs> and the whole crowd, the whole crowd goes, ooh. And then Jesus, Jay Sizzle, Jesus Christ, he, he steps up to the microphone, steps up to the microphone, and says, you do so much f- more for each one of your pets. Ignoring this woman is as bad as it gets. <laughs> I needed all vacation to come up with this. <laughs> and the crowd, the crowd does what? They're, they're, ooh, oh, snap. And we might think, okay, that's, that's what this is about. This is about the confrontation, the exchange. This is all about the rhetorical throwdown. And let's be honest, this happens time and time and time again in the gospel accounts. Jesus confronting and putting to shame the religious leaders and other people with power and privilege. It happens, and it's not irrelevant to the story, but I want to suggest that if we focus on that, as many commentators and sermons have done, we miss something so incredibly important about what this story is meant to reveal. About what this story is really all about, about what Jesus sees in this moment and what Jesus is revealing in this exchange. This is not a story about the rules of a holy day observance. This is not a story about the what of Sabbath. This is a story about the who of God's own heart. And it's easy to miss. It's easy to miss, just as I'm sure so many people missed this woman hunched over, so little and small. So many people who didn't see her and Jesus saw her. This is a story. This is a story about the who of God's own heart. You see, this woman had been bound for 18 long years, we learned. This woman had been hunched over. This woman had been little in not only her physical stature, but also in her significance in that society and culture. She had been ignored and rejected. She had been, she had been called names. She had been all the things you might expect from someone who carries no value in that social, religious, and cultural climate. And Jesus sees her. And Jesus sees her. This is not a story about the what of Sabbath. This is a story about the who of God's own heart that is revealed here. In fact, if Jesus just made this about, if Jesus just made this about the what of Sabbath or the rules of holy day observance, then once again, this woman would have been used and discarded. Just a prop to help Jesus make a point. Yay, she's healed. Move on. But people aren't props to Jesus. Jesus didn't come to prove a point. Jesus came to resurrect people. And this is a resurrection moment. A woman whose 
spirit has been crucified in a culture that dismissed and destroyed women, especially women with afflictions. Jesus goes again and again and again to the little ones. She was a nobody. To use Luke's phrase, which we'd see throughout the gospel of Luke, he goes to the little ones. The little ones are the nobodies. We often imagine when we think about Jesus welcoming the children that there were little ones, children, little ones as children. It's all about size. But in Luke's gospel, time and time and time again, this talk about size is also meant to signal something else. Something else. It's meant to signal significance. If you remember the story when Jesus... When Jesus was in his ministry, um, some children and parents of children wanted to come and wanted to come to Jesus. And the disciples did what? They said, no. They blocked the children from coming to Jesus. Why? Because children aren't significant or valuable enough to get the attention of the Savior. They don't matter. Don't bother the Savior, these little ones, with people who don't matter. He's got more important things to do. And what does Jesus do? He clears the way for the little ones to come to him and he embraces them. Yes, because they're little, but also because they were of no significance in a climate and culture that devalued them. And then he told the disciples this really interesting thing. If you want to welcome, embrace, if you want to see the kingdom of God take root, then you've got to be like one of these. You've got to identify yourself with these little ones. You've got to enter into the zone of those who are rejected, despised, insulted, cast aside, cast away, thrown down. You've got to enter into their world and be with them if you're really going to do the work that I'm all about. The little ones. And as Luke remembers these stories and brings them to our attention as church, underlying all of this is that wink to the church that says, if you want to join Jesus in his ongoing ministry, you got to be willing to see and to identify and to go to the zones where there are little ones. The insulted, the rejected, the despised, the abandoned, the abused, the neglected, the used and discarded. You've got to go where people are hurting and in pain, disincluded, and sent away. There's another story, a powerful and important story of little ones in Luke's gospel. After this story with the, with the woman, there's the story of a, a wee little man, Zacchaeus, a little guy, who was also little in significance to the holy country club of the time, to the circle of religious people who saw him only as a sinner, this label, a sinner, rejected, outcast, you don't matter in the family of God. And, and Jesus does what? He's, he's walking and Zacchaeus climbs up into a sycamore tree and he looks down and Jesus sees him. And then he does something crazy and outlandish and he says, get down from there, I'm going to your house. Not their house. I'm going to the house of the little one, the person that God sees, the who that is at the very heart of God. And then Jesus does something really crazy and outlandish. Jesus says to this Zacchaeus character, he calls him a son of Abraham. He gives him an honorary title and a title of dignity, a title of worth, a title of respect, a title that had to be accounted for by those who would despise and reject him. He gave him the title son of Abraham. And what does Jesus do in our story this morning? He calls this unnamed, hunched over woman a daughter of Abraham. 
She's not nobody. She's the very who at the heart of God. If you want to know what God's about, if you want to know what God's about, then look for the who that is at the heart of God. And this story is not meant to reveal the what or the logistics of Sabbath observance. It's meant to reveal the who that is at the heart of God. And so maybe perhaps she stood up straight when Jesus laid his hands on her and healed her physically, but I bet she was standing tall when she was called a daughter of Abraham. I'm reminded of the, of the little girl from Ader's camp, the eighth grade girl, who was so little in how she was cowering in the corner. And then how things changed. Over the course of that week, we talked about, we talked about the human body. We talked about its complexity. We talked about its um, unpredictability. We talked about the way things grow and change. We talked about who we are in very real and honest ways. We talked about how each and every one of us are made in the image of God and are the unique expression of God's creative artistry, about how our bodies, our spirits, everything about us is treasured by God and is meant to be respected and loved. We talked about how Jesus was a teenager too, which meant he went through some pretty awkward stages in his life. And you could see the teenagers in that room loosen up a little bit. And you could see her head begin to come up. We talked about how each and every one of us is meant to enjoy the life that God has gifted to us, to enjoy, to enjoy life as well as to respect and honor it. We talked, about, we talked about everything so that people could cut through the shame and the stigma that kept them in fear and insecurity. And you could see these shoulders begin to come up and chin begin to come up and eyes begin to get wide. We talked about how intimacy was this beautiful gift from God meant to be respected and honored and treasured and enjoyed and used responsibly. And how nobody there had to use their body to gain the approval of anyone else that they were meant to be stewards of what God has given them. To receive it in love and to be people of God's own heart. We talked about how they were children of God, siblings in the holy family, sons and daughters of Abraham. And I watched as on the last day, she stood tall, shoulders out, chin up, smile alive with joy, eyes alert with life. And I thought to myself, I can only describe her as a spirit set free. Thanks for listening to the message this week. Visit southelkorncc.org where you can download reflection and discussion guides to dig deeper into the weekly scripture and message.